This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our scripture reading is from John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown in prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and the one who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless... It has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens to him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us, thanking you that that means you are present with us here today. Father, we know that your words bring life, that your words preserve, but that they do not do that on their own, that your spirit is the one who empowers and enables. And so we just ask right now for you to help us. Father, we know that there is nowhere else to turn but to you. And so please direct us today. Open our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So I've been in church like my whole life, right? Like I'm a career Christian, if that's a thing. And this, sitting in this passage this week, I kept thinking about all the ways that I saw and experienced church competition. Does anyone know what I mean when I say church competition? Um, Some of you know exactly what I mean. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you might kind of have an idea of that. When I was a kid, we were Lutheran. And when we were Lutheran, you were like, we were real nervous about the Baptists, And then we became Baptist, and like the Lutherans kind of cut us off. And that kind of, so it happens between denominations, but where I ended up seeing kind of the competing the most was actually amongst churches that were almost the same, 
doctrinally, just like a little different. So you end up kind of looking at other churches, choosing one thing, bad-mouthing, scowling at them, whatever it might be. So they're growing because they just entertain people. We actually talk about the gospel. Or I heard a lot, well, they evangelize people. They don't actually disciple people. Or they baptize babies. Or they don't baptize babies. Or they let women do that. Or they don't let women do that. Or they only use KJV. Or they gasp, use the message. Or the biggest in my circle, they lean Arminian, which for some of you, you're like, you're in, that's good. Like, don't even worry about it. But that was a big no-no. Or they lean Calvinist, or they're too liberal, or they're too conservative. And where this got doubled down on the most was when churches were growing and when church wasn't, right? So there's a doubling down then on our one way to practice all the things we're the best of the Christians, and they're only growing because they're not doing it right, and people don't like the truth. And depending upon which way the wind was blowing, you decide which things are necessary for salvation or not. Like that line kind of moves. And there's kind of this idea that there's only a certain number of people to go around, that a win somewhere else in the kingdom is a threat and a loss somewhere else. That there's only um, enough people, so if they join one team, one team is losing. When others thrive in their faith, you might become envious. And when you do any of those things, you have placed a limit on God that should not be there. There is enough of him to go around and then some. And in our text today, we are going to see John kind of check some people on this very thing. So starting in verse 22, we have, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. Full stop, I could spend our whole time right there. I got real lost in this verse this week, okay, because it kind of blows my mind. You have Jesus, God present on earth, the creator, he's supreme, he knows all things, holds all things together, and he actually has a pretty short amount of time in the big scheme of things that he is actually in human form on this earth. It's not a lot of time considering everything that really needs to be done. As God, he has full knowledge all the time of violence, the pain, the heartache, the injustice, and in being man, he then has the capacity of human emotion that would go with that knowledge. And yet, instead of this sense of urgency zipping around, he chooses to go into the country just to spend time with his disciples. Now, I think sometimes we kind of act like the disciples were these groupies who were just kind of there for comedic relief or to prove a point at times. But the word disciple, methetes, literally means a learner or a student. So what Jesus calls them and us is literally one who needs to be taught, shaped, molded, and changed. So Jesus consciously is choosing people who will, yes, do his work, but also he chooses people who will be his work. So there's this time of teaching, molding, and shaping that is apparently not a waste, but I just kept thinking what I would not give to be in on these conversations. Like, what did he talk about? 
What were the questions that he would like have them group up into groups of three and then bring one thing back to the group? What were the things that were discussed? What were the things that he just taught? How did he have them pray? I'm really curious about his methods. But regardless, he is taking valuable time with those who are going to lay the foundations for the church through whom he is going to ignite the flame of the gospel, which is a worthy investment. But on the other hand, also in this group are people that we know almost nothing about. Pretty insignificant. Also in this group are those who are going to abandon him in his need, deny that they know him, and turn him over to be beaten and killed. So he's giving of himself in an intimate and intentional way to those that he fully knows are going to fail and fall. He's intentionally giving of himself precious time to people that he knows are going to turn their backs on him and give him up in a heartbeat. It's almost like Jesus doesn't care what church growth experts say about how you build a core team. It's almost like he, he like doesn't follow the right steps strategically for leadership. But really to say it is a waste of your life to give for those who might leave you, betray you, or turn their backs on you is to say that Jesus is wasting his time here. So when you give of yourself to others and it goes south or it sours or it's beyond what you can repair, all of that time, the energy, the resources you gave, it is not a waste when it comes to how Jesus measures things. It's definitely a waste from a worldly perspective, but from a kingdom perspective, it's not. So some of you take heart there. And then we see also in the countryside at this time is John. People are still coming to him to be baptized. And this dispute develops. This word dispute is usually just an inquiry. Occasionally, it is an argument. So we either have this challenger coming to debate them, or we have someone coming who is just kind of curious. We don't know for sure. But we do kind of need to understand how was baptism being practiced at this time? Baptism has been a doctrinal issue throughout church history that has resulted in a lot of division, judging people's salvation or holiness, and even bloodshed. For many churches, they have one valid mode of baptism that is needed for membership, and there are so many ways to argue for which one is valid. I've been baptized twice, two different modes, two different reasons, two different denominations. So we were Lutheran when I was born, so I got sprinkled as to like help secure the salvation or to like cover me over until the age of accountability. And then we became Baptists, so I was like, I had a real baptism, right? Like I got dunked, immersed, you know, in the lake because like natural bodies of water are bonus points. The pictures, pictures are beautiful. I had the white robe on. And then at, the reason then was to show the world from following isn't even in the text anywhere. Baptists get baptized a lot, by the way. <laughs> like, I've had a lot of conversations this week. I have friends that, like three times up, even family members. So I have two baptisms under my belt, and honestly, I had moments even this week where I was like, were either of those valid? Do I have to do this again? Like, is this a third time's a charm kind of thing? But 
Seriously. Okay. Baptists. Anyone here been Baptist? Okay. I love Baptists, right? But I am telling you, people get baptized just because they're in a cool setting, right? That's like significant. It means a lot. Or you get rebaptized kind of every time you have a real come to Jesus moment, and then you're like, oh, I didn't mean it as much before, so I'm going to do it again. We get baptized a lot. So, show of hands, who was baptized as an infant? Adult? Both? Okay, figured I wasn't alone. All right, so you guys get it. If you have attended our membership class, you know that we're a little unique here. Or maybe when we've had a baptism in the service, you recall Pastor Daryl's explanation of this. So there's evidence in the text for adult, child, infant. Historically, for those different modes as well. So at ICON, we don't divide there. Our concern is less with mode and age and always the why. Mode and age can be different, but the reason behind covenant baptism should always be the same, whether that is a parent embracing that for their child or an adult or child choosing that for themselves. Baptism is always, whether infant, child, or adult, God's action and not ours. For us in Christ, God has claimed us as one of his own, ensures regeneration and new life, and baptism does not accomplish this, but it is a sign that you can engage in. You can engage in that when you're an adult, and if that happened when you were a baby and you don't remember it, you can look back upon that as God's covenant faithfulness to you, and you have the benefits of noting parents who kind of helped claim that for you. Same meaning at the heart of it. And we together at ICON, from the beginning, we honor and respect as long as the right motivation is there, what people choose. Because guess what? The Spirit works in more ways than one somehow. So we don't divide there. So when John and Jesus arrived, though, priests and others had already been ceremonially washing as commanded by the law. So John and Jesus didn't invent baptism. It was already happening as a common practice. So the Jews would ceremonially wash and connect that to this cleansing from defilement or cleansing from sin. Gentiles were baptized to be initiated into Jewish communities. And once they were baptized into that community, they could then receive the benefits of being a part of that covenant community. Baptism was common, and so John connects meaning already there with this idea of repenting and turning away from sin as a readiness for God's kingdom. So of interest to the Jewish community was, what was the right way of achieving purification through baptism? And so here they have two men in their community baptizing with an additional message attached. So thus the cause for the questioning. And this questioning leads to this issue for John's disciples. People are leaving John for Jesus, and they're a little worried. The crowds that used to go to their guy are now going to this new teacher. Jesus' quotes are being shared more on Facebook, more Twitter followers, whatever you can think of to help you imagine what that would feel like. So how could John have felt about this? Consider, his whole life has been mapped out since he was born. 
His whole life is to get people to not see him as the answer, him as the remedy, or him as the hero, but Jesus. All of his life has been appointing a way of himself to Jesus. And because of that, he's missed out on a lot of things. He doesn't have a normal family, security, safety, comfort. He gives a lot of things up in order to be this controversial figure, eating bugs, wearing animal hides out in the desert. John could have felt neglected, forgotten, or indignant. What about giving me a little credit for what I've done? It's kind of a lot. I've made a lot of sacrifices for this. I have given so much. I have missed out on a lot of things in order to do this. Some acknowledgement or maybe even a place in Jesus' circle seems fitting. And on top of it, he has his friends in his ear saying, poor you, what about you? How often our pride, our desire for validation makes us grasp after credit or attention, especially when we've made sacrifices for things. It is easy to kind of use those sacrifices as help to get us what we think should be ours. We sometimes weaponize our pain and our struggles to elevate ourselves and manipulate others using our resume of sacrifices as a reason to withhold grace. And we are really good at finding people to help validate how we are feeling in our attempts to justify ourselves. Take care with people who only affirm your feelings or stroke your ego or make you feel content about where you want to wallow. Pay heed to those who love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself, even when it stings. So where John's disciples are not doing great here, guess who is just fine? John. Because he is operating with this kingdom perspective and not a worldly one. Has anyone ever heard of the term limited good? Like sociology, anthropology? Okay, so limited good is how they operated in that day and culture, and it actually, I think, is a lot of how we still function today. It is this idea that everything exists in finite and limited quantities. Everything good has already been distributed and it cannot be increased. So this applies to physical things, food, water, land, wealth, but it also applies to things like honor and respect and fame. So it means if one person gets more, someone else has to get less. An advantage for someone is always a loss for someone else. Progress in one area is a threat to another area. Someone gets more land, land is taken. Someone gets more fame, fame is taken somewhere. So if everything good is present and cannot be increased, this also applies to what is of God in the kingdom. So John's disciples view a gain for Jesus. It has to be a loss for John. And John has this complete unwillingness to be jealous or competitive. And he rejects basically the very premise that their whole society is built upon. He refuses to accept that this is what is happening. If anything, Jesus' success is his success too, because this is where he is going to find joy. So John explains his posture to his disciples in kind of three main points. 
Verse 27 says, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So, John first says, You can't receive more than what God can give you. John says, What I had was only because God gave it to me to begin with, so Jesus can't be stealing it. They were gods when they were following me. They are still gods when they're following John or Jesus. There's no limited good in John's mind because anything he has is not being pulled from someone else. God is the source of everything, and he has no limits. How much jealousy and resentment and bitterness would we dodge if we embrace this idea that the success and thriving of others in the kingdom is just given by God. It's never a taking from us. When you are envious because others are being sought after, trusted, thanked, liked more, any twinge of jealousy in the kingdom is an indicator that you are using gifts from God as tools for your own self-elevation. You have claimed something that is still God's as just being yours. And not having the right perspective about what God has given will always affect your relational peace with him and also with one another. This is the sin of the garden. Grasping after what is God's and saying, this is mine. And when you do that, people in your community will always pay and always be affected. You don't operate in a vacuum, no matter what you think. What you have is from God, and he can give it to whoever he wants as well. And when he does that, it's not a loss for you. With God, gain is never a loss. Gain is gain in the kingdom. Second, verse 28. John says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. John says, basically, this is what I was told. I never expected anything else. I was never the lead. I was never the forerunner. John's expectations had remained rooted in God's objective truth, and his disciples' expectations were rooted in self, their own ideas, and worldly success. Taking God's truth and promises, sprinkling in a little bit of your expectations, and then rooting yourself there, that can mess you up, and it can really alter your view of God. Our own desires and dreams can sometimes convince us that he has promised us something that he never did. And we often will look for people who will help affirm that and speak that over us with some good God language. Sometimes we can even take verses out of context and apply them to our lives in a way that makes it seem like he wants that for us. I've heard that some people are really good at reading the Bible with confirmation bias. I've heard that. I know people that have had a word spoken over them with such detail, and it was something they wanted so badly that it has completely waylaid their lives. I know people that have believed that God was going to heal someone, they were convinced, and then when that person passed, it all but destroyed their faith. Sometimes we want so badly, we pray and read into that and hope that we're convinced, of course God wants this for me. But my friends, when you are disappointed in God 
or feeling let down by him, it is never because he lied to you about what he promised. You morphed him in his promises to fit with your expectations. So you're actually disappointed in and let down by expectations that you built on a false illusion of what was secured for you. John says, I never expected anything beyond what God said. And he was content. You will only be content when you keep your expectations in alignment with what is objectively true. Third, verse 29. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So third, John says, I'm the friend, I'm not the groom. So the friend of the groom had kind of a unique place at a Jewish wedding at that time. It wasn't planning the bachelor party, writing the toast, but the friend was the actual liaison between the bride and the groom. He had a lot of jobs, but his most important duty was to guard the bridal chamber and let no one in who would compromise the bride's fidelity. He was responsible for watching over the purity and the integrity of the bride to vouch for her and to defend her good name. And he would open the door only when in the dark he heard the groom's voice, and then he would go away rejoicing. He didn't begrudge the groom the bride. He had an important task, and when it was done and they were brought together, faded out of the picture. So John is likening himself to this role. His task had been to bring Israel and Jesus together, to arrange that union. He protected and prepared the bride for the groom. They were together, his work was done, and he was happy to step away. He knew his role and didn't grasp after God's which is why he was able to find joy here. It was not with envy that he says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The word for joy here, kara, is this great, exceeding joy. This is a point where John's humanity and gifting is God's glory on display. That's that point of where greatest joy is found when how God crafted us in his image, uniquely with our abilities and gifting, is happening, we are somehow at our fullest at the same time he is fully seen. It is where our spirits kind of feel their call back home to what God had in his heart and his mind when he breathed his spirit into us. Our lives are a journey back to the purpose and perfection we were created with in the beginning. And along the way, we can catch these glimpses of that, and there's something on our spirit level that I think grasps it more quickly sometimes. I don't know if you have that moment when you just feel like your soul is saying, yes, here, this is what it is. You feel that joy. But what more does this actually mean, especially when John says, he must increase and I must decrease? This is actually where we're going to kind of camp out for the rest of our time. This is a really popular verse. Some commentators say, all this verse is, is as simple as John saying, I'm the last prophet, my time is up. So I'm gonna fade out of the public stage. 
which with the language and the context actually makes the most sense. But people have done a lot more with this verse, some of it not super helpful, so that's why I want us to talk about this a little more. So I, for years, was Reformed Baptist, okay? I don't know why I did that when I said Reformed, <laughs> but Reformed Baptist, whatever that means, okay? This is like, I don't know, every like pocket of Christianity has like really beloved verses. This was one of them for us, okay? The idea was I have to become lower, less, diminish, so that God can become greater and more. Almost like this, I need to disappear so that he can be seen. So in other words, it was almost this idea of I'm in the way of God. Because of my sin, this body, my personality, my pride, that keeps people from seeing God. Any seeing of me at all is taking away a seeing of God. And this is really this carryover of this limited good idea. Like there's only so much honor and credit and glory and attention that can be present. So if any of that is on me, coming from me, pointing back to me, I am robbing God of his glory. If my sin is prohibiting God from being seen, if any part of me is prohibiting God from being seen, then you have to be vigilant, almost obsessive about ridding yourselves of all the ways that sin is still present in your life. So where this can turn, I think, um, yeah, I'll just share it. So the end of last year, do you guys ever have that where you know God is telling you, I want you to go there, I want you to go there, you want you to go there, and you can't say no to him, so you kind of just do the like, I don't think I hear you, I don't think I hear you, or I'd just rather not, I'd just rather not, or I don't have the time. So the spirit always wins. So finally, after him like nagging me for a while, and some of you know this, I set aside time to go back and read through a lot of old journals, which I had been avoiding for years. Um, I wrote a lot like in high school and college, and I just like could not bear to read my thoughts. But I kept feeling like you need to do this. There's stuff in here that you need. So I like had an afternoon set aside, a little wine, whatever you need to do if you need to go into that space to like help you get through it, right? And it was, t it was real tough, but really helpful and enlightening, right? And exhausting, but good. It was all the things at the same time. But one of the things that was kind of jarring for me reading that, because remember, this is the space I'm coming from, was how much I just wrote about my sin like how awful I was, the confession, to the point that I'm like, I gotta burn these because I feel like if someone found them, they would think, what heinous crimes was this high schooler committing while being like church girl at the same time? Like, it's, it's awful. It's rough. So yes, we take sin seriously. We need to confess and repent and go there. But fear of taking God's credit or robbing him of his glory, of not decreasing enough, can lead to self-flagellation and never resting in grace and victory. Is seeking to have a right view of your pride and your sin and how it affects you and others important? Absolutely. 
But is your fixation almost turning onto a God who is never extending grace for you in areas that you can't seem to extend grace to yourself? I think we sometimes withhold grace for ourselves where God has already covered it. And in that, somehow our desire to diminish self has this opposite effect because guess who's still the focus there? Still me. You're like functionally treating yourself like you have the final say in your forgiveness anytime you're not resting in God's grace. He has already said it's finished. So don't act like it's not. So yes, we die to self. We put to death what is not of the spirit. That is a part of the decreasing, so he increases. But the buck doesn't stop there. God doesn't by his spirit put those things to death so he has some Christian zombies. It is also us living into being new creations who have risen with Christ. That is somehow decreasing in the manner similar to kind of how our lives are hidden in Christ. So it's decreasing in the areas that bring death, but that's coupled because of Christ with an abundance of life. Almost makes my head spin. It's one of those things where I, I don't know if you have that where you feel like you're chasing an idea and you can only hit a certain point and then it's beyond you. That's what this feels like. But it works that way because our God is a God of unlimited good. God delights in how he created image bearers with personalities, abilities, and gifts. Those things reflect and point back to him. We don't suppress or hide. That means we live big, full, loud, and abundant, as the creation should when they have a creator who spent such time and attention to detail in crafting and then steps back at his work and says, this is really good. You did a really good job. That's not a father who's threatened by children taking attention from him. That's a father who can't wait to see them flourish and thrive because of the ways that they're like him. So somehow decreasing so he increases is reclaiming what sin took and distorted. Decreasing so he increases is somehow embracing the reality of our identity that my father has called me his and I look like him. It's a pushing back against the effects of sin with power and hope. It's in being a healer and a restorer. It's in fixing our hearts upon what is eternal and unseen while still engaging in and caring for the world. It's speaking the truth in love. It's receiving the truth in love when it's spoken to you. It's self-denial and sacrifice, but not allowing that to be unhealthy. It's humility, but it's not humiliation. It's owning your sin and repenting and asking one another for forgiveness. Decreasing so he increases is just looking like God. It's laboring for justice. It's seeking out the wrongs and doing all you can in your privilege and power to right them. It's considering others before yourselves. It's loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. It's forgiving others even when they have not repented or asked for your forgiveness. So to keep it simple, it's not easy, but simple. Jesus increasing and us decreasing is us obeying him and modeling ourselves after Christ. And thankfully, we have the spirit to help us. I think we sometimes act like the spirit goes into low power mode if we're not engaging him. 
but it's always there and it's always at its fullest and we always have access to it. It doesn't shut off when you're not thinking about him, so tap in. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us without help. And our God does not see us, his children, ever as a threat to his name being glorified. Rather, you are the primary means on this earth and in this space that he is glorified. And it was his good idea to set it up that way. So when you think of the kingdom, where have you been functioning under an idea of a limited good? There's only so much to go around. Anywhere you hold that, you are going to bring death and decay into community. Because our God is about new life, and that's not how he operates. Our God is the God of an unlimited good, and as his children, we are the recipients of that. And that means we operate in a kingdom of unlimited good with access to unlimited good and a power that is unlimited. So gain anywhere within the kingdom is a reason for us to have genuine and exceeding joy, just like John felt to Jesus' success. Our God doesn't have a limit of what can go around. He is abundant. He doesn't give you a stone when you ask for bread or a snake when you ask for a fish. So let's stop operating this way. Put to death where you have a limited perception of him because on the other side of that is freedom and joy and abundance and just generosity, not just for you, but for those that are within community with you. So with God's ways, gain is always gain and never loss. Amen? And let's pray. Father, I thank you for you being a God who's incredibly kind and generous to a creation that, although made in your perfect image, has been marred by sin. But I thank you that you don't look at us as if we are broken, but that you have already done what is necessary to restore and repair. So help us to live into that fully. Help us in the areas where we are hanging on to withholding grace to ourselves. Break those areas that we have decided we're going to stay in bondage so that we can actually be decreasing in the sense that you are increasing and that your image will more fully be on display. Father, I thank you for your spirit, the help that you provide for us. And so I ask by your power that we would be filled where we need to in that way today. May we be a body that seeks to glorify you, not out of making ourselves less or smaller, but by living into you who are the greatest and the most full. We love you and in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.